Well, good evening. Let me add to Paul's welcome, as he says, not met. And my name is Matty. I'm a trainee minister and elder here at St. Andrew's Free Church. And uh, you join us this evening as we pick up in Mark's Gospel, a series that we came back to last week. So we're looking at the next part of Mark chapter 11. So if you turn up page 847 in the church Bibles, I'll read Mark chapter 11, verses 12 uh, to 25. 26, in fact. Uh, And before we do that, I will uh, lead us in prayer. Father God, uh, we thank you that as we've just been singing the wondrous story of the Lord Jesus, one that's worth singing of, as we've been reflecting on all evening, the Lord Jesus is one who is worth following with all our hearts uh, and minds and, and souls. And so we pray that as we turn to your word this evening, you would give us strength to do just that and lead us to deeper rejoicing in him, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 11, and we'll begin at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Well, I'll begin tonight with a Bible-handling top tip, with also a word of caution that comes with it. Sometimes Bible writers like to structure the material in such a way that a theme is introduced, something entirely different happens, and then the theme is come back to again. It's what, if you open up a Bible commentary, you might find them referring to as a chiasm, that structure where it's theme, something apparently different, theme again. You may also have heard it referred to as a sandwich structure. In fact, if you were here this morning, Paul showed us that some of the Psalms are structured in such a way where we're meant to pay particular attention to the things in the middle. Now, the word of caution that comes with this talk of chiasms and sandwiches is that when you start to see them, 
when you find out that that's a thing that happens in the Bible, it is easy to see them absolutely everywhere. And so a word of caution, uh, let's not think that every single part of the Bible is, is part of a chiasm. And also, let's have a healthy skepticism when somebody comes to us and says, this is definitely a chiasm and this is the one key to unlocking the meaning of the text. We should be healthily skeptical of things like that. That is not to say that what Paul observed this morning is one of those things, I, I happen to agree with him. And also, it's not to say that what I'm about to say should be met with skepticism. I hope that as we read this passage, you will see that this is a fairly clear and unanswerable example of a sandwich structure. It's a fig sandwich, if you will, which doesn't sound that appealing, but we see this story of the fig tree and on, uh, on either side of this story of Jesus at the temple. This is what the commentators call a Markan sandwich. There are lots of sandwiches in Mark's gospel, lots of examples of this kind of structure where he's highlighting something by placing things either side of it. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that in this section of Mark from 11 to 13, 14, this is a section of Mark's gospel where Jesus is being revealed to us once again as the king with authority and particularly the king with authority to save and to judge. You remember that last week felt slightly anticlimactic. He finished his triumphant entry into Jerusalem with a silent inspection of the temple before leaving town. Well, now as we pick up the drama, we find the inspector and judge returning to issue his verdict on all that he's seen. This evening we'll see that Jesus, the king and judge, has something particular in view as he, as he issues his judgment. It seems to be that religion which is fruitless is the particular thing that Jesus is pronouncing judgment on here. And so we should expect that once again this will be a slightly sobering passage which will cause us to reflect. But it's also a passage which draws us to remember the key to genuine fruitfulness. Namely, remembering that Jesus alone is the one who saves and no one and nothing else. And so trusting in our King who saves and no one and nothing else. That's where we want to get to by the end of our time together. And those are the two points under which we'll consider this passage. First of all, a curse on fruitless religion. And then second, a call to fruitful faith. So we'll begin with that first point, a curse on fruitless religion. And just something to clarify up front. If we look at my headings and, and think they look a little bit potentially on dodgy ground. When I was a student, it was pretty fashionable for a while, this is about 10, 12 years ago, to say things like, I hate religion, but I love Jesus. There was a really popular YouTube video that went viral with a poem to that effect. And that's definitely not what I'm getting at with my points this evening. Uh, to say that again, Jesus is the king who has authority. Jesus is a king who bids us to follow him, to obey him, and worship him with our whole lives as our Lord. Relationship is a wonderfully accurate description of how we know Jesus, but it's not the full picture. 
And also the Bible itself uses the word religion to describe a life lived in right relationship and right worship of Jesus, which expresses itself in practical and spiritual worship. So I want to clarify that it is not religion that's under fire here, as if that's somehow a word which we should be ashamed of. The problem in Jesus' day and in ours is religion which is fruitless. That's what we're introduced to in the preamble, the first layer of the sandwich about the fig tree. Verse 12, the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. Here's what we need to notice about this fig tree. It is in leaf. That means that it is reasonable to suppose that it's a fruit-bearing tree. Uh, I'm no botanist, uh, so I've had to trust the commentary. Some people seem to say that figs and leaves grow at the same time in fig trees. Some people seem to think that figs grow first, leaves grow first, and then figs. Either way, it has the appearance of a tree which is going to provide the nourishment that Jesus craves. And yet all he finds is just the leaves and none of the actual good stuff. We need to notice that. We also need to notice that when there's no fruit to be found on the tree, Jesus pronounces a curse on it. Now, I don't know how you get when you're hungry. Maybe you think this is a relatable episode where Jesus is overreacting to not being able to find food. Now, this is not an example of petulance. This is an enacted parable. Seb brought to us a reading earlier from Jeremiah. It's one of the many places in the Old Testament where figs and fig trees are used as metaphors for how God views his people. We frequently see this thing with, of God looking on his people as if they're a fig tree and seeing whether they are bearing fruit. As we saw in our reading earlier, that cut both ways. It was an image which was used to commend them, to commend the faithful and the fruitful, and also to condemn and pronounce judgment on those who were not worshipping God as they should. So this whole episode is pregnant with deeper meaning. Here we have God's king and judge returning to Jerusalem, returning to the temple, and on his way stopping at a fig tree. It would be a much more intuitive image for those familiar with their Hebrew scriptures. They would know that as Jesus re-enters Jerusalem, the question hovering over this episode is, Will he find fruit there? He hasn't found it on the fig tree. Will he find it on the fig tree of the temple? Remember, the stakes are pretty high with this question. We've just seen how Jesus reacts when fig trees don't bear fruit. And with such high stakes, that makes it all the more devastating that the instant verdict that we see to the, on the answer to the question, will he find fruit in Jerusalem? His instant verdict is no. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. 
and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Interestingly enough, the activities described here aren't actually wrong in themselves. Again, we can make a slight misstep in thinking that what Jesus is judging here is entrepreneurialism or capitalism or or something like that. It's not the presence of moneylenders and vendors in the temple that's wrong. In fact, you needed money changers in the temple to be able to pay atonement money, something prescribed in the law. People to convert Roman denarii into the closest equivalent of the old Hebrew half-shekel demanded in the law. And likewise, if you traveled all the way from the furthest regions of the land to Jerusalem for Passover, and you'd carried with you a a dove or a pigeon or, or something to offer as a sacrifice, and you got there and were told, actually, that's not an acceptable sacrifice, I'm afraid you can't come in, that would be pretty devastating. And so it made much more sense to have people selling acceptable sacrifices in the temple for people coming to worship. So it's not that he's judging people for trying to make a profit and exploiting God's temple for that purpose. No, it's actually much worse than that. There's a much deeper problem going on here. Because these things actually look good and right. These things seem to give a picture of a temple which is busy, thriving with people, wanting to come and worship God, wanting to bring acceptable and pleasing offerings to him. This looks like a fruitful temple. But actually, these things are so deeply offensive to God's king that the whole place is placed on lockdown right away. To put it another way, there are plenty of leaves, but absolutely no fruit. It's interesting that the story doesn't just end with Jesus driving out the money changers. He doesn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. There's no point in making an offering here. The whole system is broken. The whole tree is rotten. And I'll guess that if we think about it in those terms, then it's a much more sobering and challenging story for us too. Even things which look good, which seem to give the appearance of hearts which long after worshipping God, aren't necessarily bearing fruit. We often hear of ministries which seem to be thriving, lots of people coming to church, Bible studies growing, church plants and new church campuses opening, only to find that those in charge have actually been living in persistent sin with hearts far from God. I take it this goes some way to explaining why. Religion which looks good but actually isn't after God's heart, isn't fruitful, is nothing new. But closer to home, I'll take it that this also forces us to reflect, maybe uncomfortably, on ways in which we can be guilty of going through the motions faith-wise, 
even doing really good things, but not from hearts which want to please God. We know that it's depressingly easy to turn just about anything within the Christian life into something that I'm doing out of obligation or doing to impress others rather than doing to please and to worship God from a thankful heart. And so it's right that as we hear that challenge that we reflect on those things and we ask God for his forgiveness and help if there are things which come to light in our own hearts. But even as we do, we also need to remember that there are some pretty key differences between the leaders of old Israel and us as believers in Jesus today. We are not the same as them. And the first of those key differences, it's highlighted in the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus brings up in verse 17. He was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. There's uh, two things going on here. Two ways in which the temple as it is, the temple that Jesus finds, is failing to bear the kind of fruit that God is looking for. First, it's failing to be a house of prayer for the nations. The part of Isaiah 56 that Jesus is quoting here that gets at that. Amazingly, wonderfully, at the heart of the law of God, we find him saying that ultimately it doesn't actually matter whether someone is from outside of Israel or whether they're ceremonially unclean, all the things which the law demands. It doesn't ultimately matter to God. He envisions a day when the nations will be drawn in to know him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. Even right at the heart of the Old Testament law and the prophets, we see this idea that what matters most It's whether people love God, obey him, and want to worship him. So that's the sense in which the temple should be a house of prayer where anyone with a sincere heart can come and worship God. God says to his people that his purpose for them has always been to act as a light to the nations, to draw them to know the living God. But in Jesus' day, that's not happening. The temple is not being used to draw in and to reveal God. It is being used to exclude. And the heart of God replaced by a restrictive man-made religious code. It's not a house of prayer. Instead, it's a den of robbers. That's another Old Testament image comes from Jeremiah in his day. Israel was worshipping other gods, getting up to all sorts of sinful misdeeds, but then retreating to the temple and assuming that God would still bless them. I don't know if when you were a child you would play something like cops and robbers or, or, or den or something where you would try and catch people, but if you ran back to the den, you could hide and you were safe there. It's a bit like what the den of robbers is meant to be, not the place where they're doing their misdeeds, but the place where they retreat to and think they're going to be safe. I hope you'll agree then, an entirely inappropriate use 
of the temple and God's dwelling place. That's a pretty severe judgment that Jesus issues on the old Israel order of his day. The presenting thing for them is different. In Jeremiah's day, it was worshiping of other gods. But Jesus seems to be saying here that a barring of people from coming to know the true and the living God makes them no different from the generations that came before them, the generations on which God pronounced judgment. They say they're worshiping God, but actually they are using abusing his temple as a cover over for hearts which are far from him. And once again, I'm I'm sure there are sobering things for us to reflect on in this. It really matters how we treat the outsider. That can be one of the ways which reveals whether we're going through the motions or not. In some ways, the difference between performance faith and genuine faith is reflected in how open our churches are, how receptive we are to meeting with anyone and welcoming them to come and to know God. We need to ensure that our churches are places like that. It's right that we reflect on that. But also to remember that the main thing here isn't to beat up 21st century churches for being unwelcoming. No, this part of Mark's gospel is serving to reveal just how empty the man-made religious observance of Jesus' day was. The old Israel is failing to honor God by failing to draw people to know and to love him. I said last week that This is a section of Mark's gospel in which we might be surprised by Jesus. If you're quite new to church, you're just checking out Christianity for the first time, maybe your picture of Jesus was the not uncommon one in our world, that he was some sort of loving, peace-loving hippie, a chilled-out guy. This is a story which obviously counteracts that image. So I wonder if there's any part of us which thinks that Jesus is harsh, by driving the people out of the temple. Verse 18 gives us our answer. The chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy Jesus for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. This confirms what Jesus Jesus' prognosis is. The hearts of old Israel's leaders are so far from God that when the crowd is exposed to someone who is teaching the truth, their reaction isn't one of thankful worship. It's one of murderous hatred. They'd rather preserve their traditions than listen to the very voice of God. So we see here just how empty their man-made religion is. They're rejecting the one God has sent, and that we therefore see another, possibly the key difference between those Jesus condemns here and us. It is a key difference which allows us this evening, unlike them, to listen to a call to fruitful faith, our second heading this evening. We read on verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. 
We reach here the outer layer of the sandwich. Once again, it's poor old Peter who's left to state the obvious. It's a clear commentary on what's just happened. When Jesus the judge finds fruitlessness, he allows the tree to wither and die. And so what's true for the fig tree is sadly true for the temple and the fruitless religious observance therein. And I wonder if that's what's actually on Peter's mind here. He's not just pointing out something that they can all see. He's nervously wondering if Jesus has cursed the fig tree and it dies, if he's just cursed the temple in a similar way, well then what hope does anybody have of worshipping God? What hope does anybody have, in fact, of avoiding the judgment that Jesus himself is bringing? Well, Jesus' first response to Peter is such a soothing balm after a sobering story. Peter, have faith in God. That's the key to salvation. That's the key to escaping judgment. It's also the key to genuine fruitfulness. For us, it's another key difference between us and the old Israel. It's one that's beyond Peter's imagination at this point, but one that we know that access to God doesn't require a physical, geographical temple. It's no coincidence that Jesus has just pronounced judgment on the temple for failing to be a house of prayer, and now, a consequence of faith, prayer is highlighted. What does the prayer of faith look like? Well, verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The verses as we have them here in English, that they smooth out a slightly clunkier rendering in the Greek, which draws out some of the connections more clearly. Uh, verse 24 is, is more like, as you pray and ask all these things. So what we don't have here is a random disconnected mini-sermon on prayer. No, this is intrinsically linked with everything that's come before. Now, it's possible that there's a very specific dimension to this image of a mountain being thrown into the sea. As Peter and Jesus and his followers have this conversation, they will be looking out at Mount Zion. So it may be that Jesus has in mind a particular Old Testament prophecy which describes Mount Zion being replaced by a valley through which God's people can flee to safety maybe slightly less specific than that, more broad. Jesus saying, Peter, you're anxious about whether anyone can be saved. Of course you are. You've just seen what happens when trees don't bear fruit. You've just seen me cursing the temple. But the power of faith is the power of God to do what seems impossible. The mountain, in either case, serves as a metaphor for the problem of our sin. The temple can't sort it out. Who or what can? Well, Peter, here's the assurance. 
that the key to knowing God and having sins forgiven is not reliance on an old system of religious observance that's not doing its job. It's reliance on God himself, something which Jesus the King makes possible. That call to faith is one that we see come up time and again in Mark's gospel. And it's always a call, which is really a call to know and to follow Jesus. He is the one who can solve the problem of human sin. He is the one who can draw people to know and to worship God in truth. And so with that in place, we have the assurance that even as we pray for the seemingly impossible, the forgiveness of our sins by a holy God, well, the prayer is answered. To clarify it even further, Jesus adds an extra dimension in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I suppose it would be easy to turn even the amazing privilege of accessing by faith God in prayer turning that amazing privilege, even that, into a going through the motions type of thing. If you're anything like me, it's sad how often that's what prayer can become, a daily tick box exercise. If old Israel were guilty of using the temple as their safety den, the thing which makes them say, well, it doesn't matter whether I'm living in obedience to God, I've got the temple. I take it that we as believers today can find it easy to think, well, it doesn't matter whether I'm living in obedience to God, I pray every day, I do the minimum that's expected of me. Here's a helpful reminder for us then. King Jesus the judge is not fooled. Pious but thoughtless or heartless reciting of prayers isn't enough turning our prayer life into a simple system where we feel really, really good about ourselves when we've had a, a long, quiet time in the morning. That's not enough. So here we see a challenge and an encouragement. The prayer of genuine faith is one that comes from a heart which knows its own need for forgiveness. Just note the difference in heart between old Israel and the faithful prayer that Jesus describes. One is filled with murderous hatred, whereas the other is full of humility and a desire to forgive others. That's the fruit of a repentant and contrite heart, because after all, if I'm really conscious of how great a sinner I am, of how much the Lord has forgiven me, how could I ever withhold forgiveness and grace from somebody else? It's another convicting question for us to reflect on. And I take it one which drives us once again to prayer and draws us back to the realization that our only hope is in the God with real power to save and to forgive. The God and King which this whole passage is drawing us towards. 
This is a challenging passage because it exposes for us that left to our own devices and trusting in man-made traditions and programs, well, then we're lost. That was true for those ritualistically observing the temple of the day. It's true for us if our trust is in anything outside of Jesus. No man-made system, no matter how good it may look, is of any value to save. Even the very best of our efforts will only ever be like leaves on a tree. But listening to God and trusting in him for salvation as he's revealed it in Christ Jesus our King, well, that allows us to know the wonder of sins forgiven. It compels our hearts to share in the heart of God. And as we close this evening, draws us to make sure that our trust is in our King and to not look anywhere else. Let's pray to God now through our King Jesus then as we close. Father God, we are sorry for the times in which we find ourselves trusting in our own man-made devices and not in you and in the mercy you've shown us in Christ. We pray even as you expose some of these tendencies in our own hearts that you would draw us once again to rejoice in and to trust deeply in the Lord Jesus, the one who has solved the seemingly impossible problem of our, our sins against you. As we trust in him, then help us to share his heart for those around us. We pray that we'd always be a church where anyone could come and meet with you in the pages of your word. And we pray you would send us all out, trusting and delighting in the king who rightly judges man-made religion, but who also shows himself to be the king who saves. It's in his name we pray. Amen.